Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that the confession of Peter would be our confession this morning. To whom else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We ask that your spirit would accompany uh, the proclamation of the gospel this morning, that we would be built up in our most holy faith, and that we would indeed, not only as individuals, but as a congregation, look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Our scripture reading uh, for the message is John chapter 6. Again, we'll be looking at uh, select portions of God's word, 47 to 58, and then 66 to 71. And that can be found on page 892, 892 in the Pew Bible, John chapter 6. First, we'll read uh, 47 to 58, 47 to 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the world, in um, the bread that I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of 
um, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. On my recent trip to Puerto Rico, I and several brothers from the presbytery with their wives traveled to San Juan to receive the mission work, Sola Escritura, as a particular congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Once on the island, we rented two cars and made our way to Guayama. The first thing we all agreed on as nine hungry and thirsty travelers was to find a place to eat. We settled on an out-of-the-way place called Cunhao, which means brother-in-law. Once we were seated, we were served an outstanding home-style meal that far exceeded uh, our furthest expectations. And I could assure you that they had nine extremely contented and fully satisfied customers after that feast. Our Lord Jesus Christ directs our attention this morning to hungry and thirsty travelers of another sort, to the soul who hungers and thirsts, the kind of hunger and thirst that only he can satisfy. In our passage, Jesus is drawing the eyes of his hearers to the reality of a spiritual realm where true heavenly food is being graciously and freely offered on earth. As he says, my body is true food and my blood is true drink, verse 55. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, verse 54. Or simply put, whoever believes has eternal life, verse 47. I'd like you to look with me at verse 66, because it's a pivotal verse in this section of John chapter 6. The literal language in the beginning uh, of that verse 66 is not after these things in the Greek. It's from that time. If you look at the beginning of chapter 6, and if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, that correctly uses after these things. So it's indicating a transition from one set of events to another set of events. But here... In verse 66, it's after, it's, excuse me, it's from that time, from that time, indicating a cause and effect relationship. The cause is what comes before, the claim of Jesus. And the effect is what follows, the interaction about the claim. So I'd like to follow that outline and begin and frame it as, as, as a question in each case. So the first is the claim, I am the bread of life. Is Jesus who claims I am the bread of life the one for whom our souls do hunger and thirst? So what is Jesus actually saying when he makes this claim? And do I believe it? The I am 
formula harkens back to God's only name, Yahweh, meaning he who always was, is, and will be, who had come down to deliver his people, as is made plain in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. The redemption of God's people was promised throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, where God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the shadows, types, and figures from the anointed officers of prophet, priest, and king to the entire ceremonial system pointed to a day when this promise would be fulfilled. One of the many outstanding prophecies made of the coming Messiah is found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It tells us that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was very purposeful in his use of words in identifying himself as divine. And the ego, amy, I am formula is one obvious example. Listen to the stunning use of it in John chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Let me say that again. Listen to the structure. Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews immediately knew what he was saying. And they took up stones to stone him. He was taking the title reserved for God alone found in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. I am who I am. He was taking it and applying it to himself. And just as God tells Moses that he had seen the affliction and the suffering of his people and he will come down to deliver them, so too Jesus claims to have come down from heaven as God incarnate, as one who would dwell with us, John chapter 1, verse 14, to accomplish and apply the promised redemption. So he constructs the I am formula in contexts where timeless implications are undeniable, as he does in our passage. I am the bread of life, verses 35 and 48. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verses 33 and 51. And as Peter confesses in verse 69, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. You are Holy God in human form. You have entered the world stage of human history to deliver us. So there is a second element to this claim of Jesus. Not only the I am claim of uh, divinity, but as life-giving bread, a claim of vitality to feed us. The miraculous feeding of the 5,000 
and the miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness sustained life temporarily and served as a sign and symbol of that reality of eternal life in Jesus that he would provide through his atoning sacrifice, verses 53 to 57. Jesus uses these two events that speak of the essential nature of bread, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, verses 1 to 14 of John chapter 6, and the miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness mentioned in verse 31, to elevate their concept of life and to direct their eyes to his true identity as vital bread that endures to life eternal. Many who saw the miraculous sign of the feeding of the 5,000 said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. And he, he withdrew, verses 14 and 15. Not the kind of life he had come to give. Later, a crowd that was searching for him found him and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, what Jesus said to them, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, that is the feeding of the 5,000, but because you are filled, you ate your fill of the loaves. Again, missing the mark. Not the kind of life he had come to give. Jesus then gives the true significance of the sign. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which, which the Son of Man will give you. The conversation turns to the miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness, beginning in verse 31. The significance of the symbolism was missing here, too. So Jesus says, verily, verily, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. I want you to notice um, something very odd in that passage where he talks about um, the past tense in the first section and then in the present tense uh, in the second portion. And I think we need to understand it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, you need to pay close attention. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. That line of reasoning leads to a dead end. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Follow the symbolism of the manna to the hand of my father. Verse 32. And so they said, sir, give us this bread always. The symbolism of manna was pointing to the true bread, the heavenly reality. They did not see that the true bread of heaven was a person. And so when Jesus immediately says, I am the bread of heaven, it offended them. I want you to notice something from our uh, Old Testament passage Exodus, <clears throat> the Lord instructed the Israelites to take 
a jar of manna and to place it before the Lord, before the Ark of the Testimony. And it was a way to um, teach of God's faithfulness to his people. But there's something else to keep in mind. And that's why I mentioned earlier in the service, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, where the writer is laying out uh, the furniture of uh, the sacrificial system in the tabernacle, which has been all accomplished in Christ. But he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant and the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. And if you lift that lid up there, you're going to find the tablets that God gave to Israel. You're going to see the the bud, uh, the um, budding of Aaron's rod. And then you're going to see this golden pot of manna. But once a year, this this is the significant part. Once a year, throughout their generations, the high priest would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. Jesus is the manna who would give his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 51. There are some who wonder why John does not mention the institution of the Lord's Supper during the so-called upper room discourse beginning in chapter 13. Well, it's hard to deny that John is using sacramental language here in verses 53 to 56. It's also hardly a coincidence to see the connection that John makes between the Passover feast drawing near, verse 4, And the claim of Jesus, I am the bread of life, symbolized by the manna. Again, go back to these verses, 53 to 56. Jesus clearly is speaking here of sacramental um, language. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And he goes further by saying that the life that the Father and the Son have within themselves will be shared with us through our union with him. Verse 57. The vitality that he has in himself will be our vitality. And this helps us gain Uh, a measure of biblical understanding into Peter's statement that we share in the divine nature. Peter chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. This claim of vitality has everything to do with being made new creatures in Christ. That is, those who possess this life by means of belief in his death, burial, and resurrection. So he claims as the great I am, a claim of divinity to be God with us, as the life-giving bread, a claim of vitality to feed us, and thirdly, as a guarantee of eternal life, a claim of authority to never forsake us. 
Jesus says that God the Father has placed his seal on him. God the Father has sent him. And God the Father has given to him all that will come to him. Jesus said, God the Father has set his seal on me as the food that endures to eternal life. Verse 27. So he has the authority to say, all who come to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said, as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Verse 57. Jesus has the authority over our salvation. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And that beautifully illustrates what he's promising here. This claim of authority ensures that he will finish what he has started. He has the authority to say, I will raise him up on the last day four times. Verses 39, 40, 44, 54. I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus has the authority to say, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. 37. By the way, that's one of John Bunyan's favorite uh, scriptures. But furthermore, Jesus has the authority to say, here's the work of God. Here's the will of my Father. Here's the will of God. And here's the wisdom of God. And all of them coalesce together to say one thing. You know what it is? Come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will have eternal life. He has the authority to turn to you this morning and say, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, verse 29. He has the authority to say, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, verse 40. He has the authority to say, everyone who has heard and and learns from God, has the wisdom from the Father, comes to me. Verse 45, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and truth. So Jesus has the authority to say, come, believe, and receive. I'd like to transition to um, the interaction about the claim of Jesus. And it it really is a series of heart-gripping superlatives. The question is, do they benefit our souls as we go over them? So first, many of his disciples, they make the saddest of departures. Verse 66, many of his his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The word translated turned back here can be used to indicate that you're actually following somebody. You're 
you're looking at their back because you're following them. But the context makes it clear that they are no longer following Jesus. The implication is they've, they've gone back to following the former things. And what makes this the saddest of departures is that they were considered his disciples. They were following him. They saw his miraculous signs. They heard his words of spirit and of life. They beheld this truth in Jesus, in his words, that he is God with us. He is holy God in human form. The one who would satisfy our hungry and thirsty souls with his life and that he would never leave us or forsake us. How does it benefit us? Well, you know, we, we, we all think of someone that we've gotten to know for a long time, who's in the church, or even maybe a family member. That we just long that they would come to that point of professing faith in Jesus Christ and and they seem to be leaving Christ. They're departing. And it it, it really brings a great sadness in our hearts. And um, we need to avail ourselves of that prayer that the Lord speaks of, that even if it's so sorrowful, that all we can do is groan. It, it, it's the spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us that makes sense of our groanings. And, and so we, we bring them before the throne of grace. We pray. We evangelize. Um, and we, we bring the gospel. We know what the Lord has done in our life. And we know what God is able to do in the lives of others. We pray and we go out and we um, evangelize with the good news of the gospel. Secondly, Jesus gives the 12 um, the sincerest of challenges. Verse 67, immediately the Lord Jesus Christ turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go away? Do you want to go away as well? When you think about a movement um, like the one that they were experiencing there when people are leaving, and it probably wasn't just a few, um, it becomes, kind of takes the shape and form of a temptation. And Jesus knows this. Uh, Satan works in many, uh, many ways. Um, And we are not... um, ignorant of his devices, Paul says. But the the temptation to depart is acknowledged by Jesus, but what does he do? He masterfully uses the event to test them. It's interesting in the Greek that the word for tempt and test is the same word. It's the same word in Greek. So it's, it's the context, and it's, it's who uh, you're speaking of. God does not tempt any man, but he does test us. He does try us. He refines us um, as gold is refined in the fire. And so it's the sincerest 
challenge because the question, do you want to go away as well, is designed by our Savior to draw out from the heart faith and hope and love that the soul might be constituted as stable and strong in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, how does it, how do we benefit from this? We get into the, into the word. We don't fail to attend the services um, of worship. We fellowship together. We make use of the means of grace because that's where the word of God is applied by the Holy Spirit. God knows our lives. I don't know you uh, in that intimate way. Pastor Ron doesn't know you in that intimate way. Pastor Jim doesn't know you in that intimate way. But this is uh, what takes place as we make use of the means of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ is using these things to mature us and to cause us to grow. And the effect is seen as we proceed to our next superlative. Peter makes a confession of the strongest of beliefs, verses 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? There's nothing to be found in life without you. The landscape is barren, right? Our hearts are weary. The psalmist expresses it in the song that we sang earlier in the service. Whom have I, Lord, in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Can you say that? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I acknowledge that you have the words of spirit and truth. You have the words of eternal life. I acknowledge them. I believe them. I'm convinced of the truth. But he has to go more in the meaning of belief, right? He has to entrust himself to the Lord. He has to trust him. I trust you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have believed and have come to know, acknowledging that there is a progression um, being taught by the Father having been regenerated by, this, by the, the Holy Spirit, there is that ongoing illumination that takes place in the soul. And the Spirit, his honor and, and is to elevate the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in our hearts and in our minds. And that's what he will do. Here we have the strongest of beliefs. Why? Because it acknowledges who Christ is and what he has come to do and embraces that truth in faith. We see here the benefit to our own soul, right? The centrality of worship. Why? You can't worship God in any place but a corporate worship service? How sad. No, our confession is quite clear that you worship God individually in your private time, in your small groups. You worship God in your family time. And yes, you worship. You cannot be entering the corporate worship and think that you automatically are worshiping. That's not how it works. You are confessing what Peter is confessing. That's worship. That's the centrality of worship. We come to the Father through Jesus the Son. We worship him in spirit and in truth. And then we see how Jesus tenderly provides the eleven with the securest of reminders. It's kind of hard to read, right? But Jesus knew all things. He knew this was going to take place. And so, verses 70 to 71, he gives this reminder to them. And it's the securest of reminders. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, betrayal... We heard about it in the Sunday class a little bit too, right? It's a horrible thing because the prerequisite for this treachery is to gain the trust of the one to be betrayed. Now, even Dante, that exquisite writer of the the 1300s, by all accounts, uh, one of the greatest Uh, of literary works, was influenced by this event. Um, He included it in his first poem, uh, Inferno. According to Dante, the only thing lower than betrayal in the pit of hell is Lucifer himself, who was depicted as having three heads, and in the jaws of each were Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. (laughs) Satan may have attacked Jesus and tempted Jesus, but no breach head could be found in Jesus to corrupt him or to deter him, praise God, from going to the cross, going to the grave, and then rising again the third day. The battle is won, victorious, He has overcome, and because we are in union with him, we too are overcomers. And the promise that he makes to you, and I'll leave you with this thought. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, he says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, a symbol of Christ himself, exclusively, given to those who believe in him by grace. 
Praise God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that uh, you would plumb the depths of our own heart, that you would probe us, that you would draw out, Lord, these clear confessions of faith in you, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would see the heavenly reality of eternal life in Christ Jesus, that we more and more as a congregation would reflect that holiness in our lives. Lord, we ask for your help, we ask for your blessing, and we ask it all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.